Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's hard for me to believe it's been over 30 years since it happened. I remember seeing it on TV. On March 4th, 1990, senior forward Hank Gathers from Loyola Marymount University shocked the sports world when he suddenly collapsed during a West Coast Conference tournament game, stopped breathing, and died shortly thereafter. He was just 23 years old. Gathers had led the nation in both scoring and rebounding as a junior and was expected to win college basketball player of the year honors and projected to be an NBA lottery pick. An autopsy later revealed that this extremely well-conditioned college athlete suffered from a previously undiagnosed heart disorder called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. After his death shocked our nation, Loyola Marymount inspired basketball fans everywhere, defying the odds just a couple of weeks later in the NCAA tournament. Gather's team pulled off a Cinderella run in the tournament by upsetting three higher seeds on their way to the Elite Eight. During the tournament, right-handed teammate Bo Kimball honored his fallen best friend by shooting the first free throw of every game left-handed. The sudden passing of Hank Gathers made national headlines in 1990 because no one expected a well-conditioned college athlete to collapse and die during a game. Tragically, there are thousands of seemingly healthy Christ followers collapsing today because they have what I call spiritual heart disease, and they don't even know it. We're taking a break from our journey through the parables of Jesus so we can look at another pivotal interaction between Jesus and his disciples today. So if you would, please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. If you haven't done so already, pull out the sermon note handout that you received when you came in this morning. If you need a Bible or you need a handout, you can get them off the information table in the back. As we look at God's Word together this morning, here's what I hope you'll take away from our time together. This would be the big idea, the sermon in a sentence, if I could boil it down to one simple statement, and that is, the neglected heart will harden, but the cultivated heart can soften. The neglected heart will harden, but the cultivated heart can soften. The Scriptures have nothing good to say about a heart that is hardened towards the Lord. But they have much to say about taking measures to prevent it or to cure it. Although there's only 10 or 11 verses that we'll be looking at this morning in our primary text, There is a lot that has been happening that leads up to Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21. And so, 
in order to properly interpret this passage and to understand what's going on and what God's Word has to say to us this morning, we need to look at the backstory that brings us to this, this climax, this turning point in the Gospel of Mark. And so here's a little background for you. Jesus did two bread miracles in the Gospel of Mark that are referenced in today's scripture text. The first bread miracle is in Mark 6. So if you would keep your finger in Mark 8 and turn back to Mark 6 with me. And I just want to show you a couple of things. Mark 6. I'm going to read just the end of the bread, first bread miracle. It's, it's verses, uh, I'm going to read verses 41 to 44. So Mark 6, verse 41, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve basketful, twelve baskets excuse me, full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Now, Jesus was doing this miracle, for one of many reasons he was doing it, was to try and teach his disciples about compassion for the poor, about his ability to provide for our needs, and that his power proved his deity, that he was God. All these things were things that the, the, the Pharisees were missing, they weren't getting. Now, after the first bread miracle, excuse me, Jesus sent his disciples out on the Sea of Galilee and then went up to a mountain to pray. And we see that in the next paragraph. You probably have a, a subheading in your Bible that says, Jesus walks on water. And so Jesus sends them on ahead on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. I'm going to go up a mountain and pray. And in essence, he communicates, I'll catch up with you later. Well, he does catch up with them by walking on water. In a storm, and then gets into the boat with him. And so look at, if you would please, at verse 52, which is right at the end of the, well, 51 and 52, right at the end of the walking on water event. And so it says, he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That is the key verse, that is a pivotal verse here, a clue for us that will help us understand Mark 8. Now, I should mention that many scholars uh, believe that Mark wrote this gospel by recording the emphatic accounts of Peter's experiences with Christ. That's because Mark was too young uh, to be with Jesus during his earthly ministry, and we also know that Peter was the shall I say, impulsive, emotional leader of the disciples. I heard someone say once years ago that Peter must have had peppermint socks because he put his foot in his mouth very often. Now, imagine Peter near the end of his life telling Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, all these events that took place with Jesus. Imagine him telling Mark, so then he walks on water. And we were freaking out. I don't know if that was a word that they used back then, but, but Mark, we freaked out because at the time we didn't understand what the Lord was trying to teach us with the miracles of the loaves. 
Imagine Peter telling that with the, the benefit of hindsight in his elder years, looking back, being able to say, ah, we didn't get it at the time, but now, now I know what the Lord was doing. Now, I just have to ask before I move on any further, did you know that there are things the Lord has done in our lives this year that we've missed or misunderstood? Did you know that happens to all of us? Perhaps it was when you were struggling with loneliness and isolation during the COVID-19 shutdowns or Perhaps it was during a relational conflict that didn't end well. Or maybe it was an unanswered prayer. Or maybe a financial setback or a new health problem. Yes, the Lord is always doing things in our lives that we miss or we misunderstand, but thankfully there's hope. There's hope. I mean, the disciples miss things too, as we can see here in Mark 6.52. And Jesus wants to help us just as he did them. Now, the disciples' lack of understanding is one of the reasons I think Jesus did another bread miracle. We see that in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. So just hang a right there and go to Mark chapter 8, and you'll see another heading, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Mark 8, verses 1 through 10. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to read, I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now, on the, on the surface, this miracle looks like the one Jesus did in chapter 6, except that they had 12 baskets left over in chapter 6, but this time they had seven remaining. Now you might be wondering, okay, so what's the big deal, Pastor Kerry? Okay, so they had, they had less left over this time, so maybe you know, they, they just, the people were hungrier, this crowd was, than the last crowd. And, well, here's, here's why. The word for baskets, or basketfuls, in the original language of Mark 8, 8, is a different type of basket than the one that was used in Mark 6.43. You see, these seven basketfuls in Mark 8.8 8 were larger than the 12 in Mark 6. In Mark 6, in essence, there were 12 lunch basket-sized baskets left over. <laughs> Lunchbox-sized. In Mark 8... Verse 8, the seven baskets were hamper-sized, big enough to hold a man, each of them. So what's the point? There, there was more left over in the second miracle. Now, why was there a second bread miracle? Well, one of several reasons I think the Lord did this is that sometimes the Lord repeats tests in our lives until we learn what he's trying to teach us. Have you ever noticed that? I won't ask for a showing of hands. I'm assuming you've been through that, as I have. 
Again, as was the case in the last bread miracle, Jesus and his disciples got into the boat and continued making stops in the Sea of Galilee. So we have two bread miracles leading up to Mark chapter 8. Now if you would, let's look at the text we'll be focusing on today. Uh, Mark 8 verses uh, 14 to 21, but I'm going to start in verse 11. The Pharisees, it says in verse 11, came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Did you notice, by the way, that he had already done a couple miracles? And then it didn't satisfy the Pharisees. Verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full, baskets full of broken pieces did you have to take up? And they said, 12. In the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? If you would look at verse 17 with me, this is the key word. I want to encourage you to underline in your Bible, and that is the word hearts hardened. Well, it's two words, excuse me. It's one word in the Greek, two in the English. Are your hearts hardened? You can almost feel the penetrating look that Jesus gives his disciples as he's standing probably in the bow of the boat, and he turns around and looks at them. You probably got this kind of look from your parents when you were little. Kind of the, what are you doing and you should know better kind of look. Now, heart's hard is a fascinating compound Greek word. It's sclerocardia. Sclero, the first half of the verb, is a medical term that was used to describe the hardening of bones, becoming brittle, as in the aging process. Cardia is the Greek word from which we get cardiology and cardiac. The Hebrew and Greek words for heart, so this would be in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word for heart occurs over a thousand times in the Bible, making it the most common anthropomorphic term mentioned in the Scriptures. In other words, it is the most common body part that the Lord refers to in His Word. The Bible defines the heart as the center of our physical, emotional, and intellectual and moral activities. It is what drives everything we do, everything we think, everything we say. Thus, when this word is used in the scriptures, it's meant to refer to all of you, every ounce of your being. 
This is why, for example, when the Lord called on the people of Israel to repent of their rebellion and running from Him in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, in order to avoid judging them, God didn't want to punish them. He was giving them another opportunity to repent. Well, the Lord says to the people of Israel in Joel 2.13, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. It's a reference to the Jewish custom of tearing one's clothes in mourning for the death of a loved one. Except what the Lord was saying to the people of Israel in Joel chapter 2 is that when you mourn your sin in fasting and weeping, uh, I want you to tear your heart instead of your clothes. I don't want a performance. I don't want you going through the motions. I want to see change. The centrality of the heart and its importance to the Lord is seen in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Where Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, a person who struggles with lying, according to Jesus, has a heart problem. Or the person who struggles with complaining and criticizing others has a heart problem. The person who struggles with boasting and bragging about themselves, you guessed it, has a heart problem. The mouth only reveals what the heart contains, is what the scriptures teach. I mentioned Joel chapter 2 and then Matthew 12, 34. Well, finally, this is the centrality of the heart can also be seen in the greatest commandment. This is why when Jesus issued the greatest commandment, when he was pushed by the Pharisees to, to boil his teaching down into one statement, Jesus did so in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. Dear loved ones, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ wants your heart. He wants your heart first above all things. And everything else will take care of itself after that. In a general sense, it's our inherited sin nature that causes our hearts to harden. However, there, I think, are four risk factors that make it more likely to happen. Just as there are risk factors for physical heart disease that make one more prone to have a heart attack, well, there are risk factors for spiritual heart disease. Here's four of them, letters A, B, C, and D on your outline. The first is disappointment with God. Disappointment with God. We see this in Exodus 17, uh, verses 1 through 7, where the people of Israel were, had just experienced an amazing work of God. He releases them. He breaks them out of jail, out of slavery in Europe, and parts the Red Sea and allows them to escape and then closes the Red Sea on the Egyptian army. But just a couple of chapters later in Exodus 17, when things got difficult after their liberation from Egypt, and they ended up in the wilderness, the people began to quarrel with Moses and asked him, did you just bring us out of Egypt so that we could die out here instead of there? 
Psalm 95 verse 8 provides some commentary on Exodus 17. And Psalm 95 says the people hardened their hearts. They hardened their hearts towards the Lord at Meribah and Massah because of their disappointment. I know I personally have had seasons of deep disappointment in the Lord and have had to fight that hardening of my own heart. Perhaps you have as well. But deep disappointment in God, it can knock the wind out of our souls like a sucker punch does to our stomach. However, it can also become a season of significant spiritual growth. It can allow the Lord to correct the misconceptions about Him that led to our disappointment. He can redeem it for good. So disappointment, the first risk factor of spiritual heart disease. Here's the next one, letter B, is pride. In Proverbs 29, verse 1, the person who is rebuked several times, we're told, but stiffens his neck, meaning he, he becomes even more stubborn and resistant to correction, that that person will be broken beyond healing. It's describing someone whose heart is so filled with pride that they consider themselves above correction or accountability. And this person thinks that they are always right and becomes more convinced the more they are corrected. That is very, very dangerous for the soul. So we've got disappointment, we've got pride, and then letter C, unrepentant sin. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul describes a person who has become so entrenched in a sin pattern that their heart has become too hard to repent. Let me just say, folks, that is not a good place to be. For one of the many reasons I have always counseled believers, including my own children, to repent of their sin quickly is that there is a desensitizing or a calcifying of the heart that begins to take place when repentance is procrastinated. It's, it's as if our heart begins to justify and make the sin okay so that we can then do it again. You can even get to a point which, if that individual is a believer, they may reap serious consequences from the Lord in order to bring them back to repentance. And next, letter D is discouragement. The fourth risk factor for spiritual heart disease is discouragement. Sometimes the weight of a huge trial or several sequential ones can overwhelm us like a rogue wave pounding a ship. And other times... Discouragement can be caused by a lack of fellowship with other Christians. We see this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, where the author of Hebrews encourages us to encourage one another every day so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 I think what he's stressing is the importance of being connected to edifying relationships in a local church because believers who are isolated tend to get discouraged 
and then fall into sin patterns because of their discouragement. And so, disappointment, pride, unrepentant sin, discouragement, these are at least a few risk factors that can lead to the hardening of your heart. Now let's look at the symptoms that the disciples manifested. So how do you know, let's, let's, let's put on our doctor hats, how do we know if someone has it or if I have it or you have it? Well, here's four symptoms that are manifested by the disciples in the passage today. Number one is numbness to the word of God. Numbness to the word of God. According to Webster's Dictionary, to be numb means to be deprived of the power to feel. The sense of being able to move or to be deadened to stimuli. And we see this in in verse 15. Notice Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the leaven, or some translations will say yeast of the Pharisees. Having, Having just done a second bread miracle, the Lord is... Got bread. He knows bread is on the forefront of everyone's mind. He can hear the disciples talking in the boat about bread. So he decides to use the metaphor of yeast to give the disciples a stern warning. Many of you know that yeast is, or leaven, is the key ingredient that makes bread rise and expand. In the Bible, yeast or leaven is a metaphor for false doctrine or sin. Just like yeast, false doctrine or sin starts small as seemingly harmless things, but then expand to infect the rest of the believer and the church. And in this case, the yeast that Jesus is referring to is the empty religion, self-righteousness, worldliness, and faithless skepticism of the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be like them. Those guys that we just talked to a minute ago who wanted to see more signs from me, don't be like them. And so note the disciples' response in verse 16. They began discussing with one another, bread, did you bring the leftovers? I thought you were going to bring the leftovers. He's saying we aren't... Why didn't you bring the leftovers? Why don't you have the bread? I thought he, well, he said he was going to get it. This is one of the moments in scriptures where I wish I could have been there. On the other hand, I'm glad I wasn't. Because this would have been like as uncomfortable as, say, you know, being in the grocery store when a parent disciplines their child. You know, it's just that awkward, yeah, I wish I wasn't here. I wish I wasn't seeing that. Jesus turning and sternly asking these rhetorical questions to the disciples. But something else we should not miss, dear loved ones, is that the word of God was coming out of the Son of God to these men, the best teacher who had ever lived, but it was sadly falling on numb hearts. They weren't getting it. This is immensely sobering because it's a reminder that the impact of God's word isn't solely determined by the effectiveness of the preacher and his ability to keep your attention, but also by the receptiveness of the listeners. 
I wonder how many people have left a church because they said, ah, the teaching's boring and I can't get anything out of it when it wasn't the teacher's problem or the preacher's problem, it was their hardness of heart that they weren't receptive to the word. This also dispels the myth that if we were with Jesus in the flesh for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that, and we witnessed his miracles, that our faith would just never struggle and it would be as strong as ever. No. It wasn't for the disciples. See, individuals with a hard heart, they hear the word of God taught, but they walk away unchanged, uninspired, and they don't apply it. They don't do it. And if we're not careful to tend our hearts consistently, we can become spiritually stagnant, like a paraplegic is immobile. And that's a very, very bad place to be. And so, uh, application. What do, we, what do we do with this? Well, I think it's a reminder to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. It's a reminder that we should never, ever take a blasé approach to God's word in the scriptures. Doing so is a great offense to the Lord and to those who died. They gave their lives so that we could have English copies of the word. Practically, this means you shouldn't rush into your daily devotions throughout the week. Instead, quiet your heart in prayer and ask the Lord to plow the soil of your heart so that it can receive the seed of the word when you read it, and the word will take root in your heart. Quiet your heart and prepare your heart so that you don't miss what the Lord might want to show you in his word. You might be saying, well, I don't have time, Pastor Kerry. I mean, golly, my, my days are, they start early and I have to get the kids ready or I've got to get to work. And so, so. Well, then maybe you need to go to bed earlier the night before so you can get up earlier in the morning and have a little more time with the Lord. Preparing your heart also can mean you might need to go to bed earlier on Saturday night so that you can get up a little earlier on Sunday morning and not be rushed to get here for worship service. Instead, maybe if you had a little more time on Sunday morning because you got up earlier and you got up earlier because you got to bed earlier on Saturday night, maybe you could play some worship music or something like that in your home before you get ready to go to church. Like Maybe you could have your own hype list like athletes do before they go to a game. They got their favorite tunes playing so they get psyched up. Maybe you need to have that. I'm just throwing ideas out. But the neglected heart will harden. But the cultivated heart can soften. Next, the next symptom is vision impairment. Vision impairment. Jesus asking these penetrating questions that none of us would want to be asked by him. Having eyes, do you, do you not see? A contemporary rendering of this would be, are you, are you blind? Jesus is saying they missed the point of the bread miracles, even though the miracles were happening right in front of them. 
The disciples lacked spiritual discernment. And to have spiritual discernment means that you have the ability to see God at work so that you can adjust your life accordingly. Now, on the one hand, this, this should humble us because if the disciples struggled to have spiritual discernment, then what makes us think we won't struggle? On the other hand, this verse can encourage us because it's a reminder that Jesus can use anybody, including us. We know as we continue to read the Gospels and then the book of Acts that the Lord did use these men as, as messed up and silly and goofy and awkward and weak as they were. The Lord used them. So thus we can look at this passage. And I just want to encourage you to do this because I'm, I'm able to do this by God's grace and by spirit. I, I read this passage and go, well, at least there's hope for me. The prolific author who lived in the 20th century, Helen Keller, she was both blind and deaf. I remember learning about her when I was in grade school. She was once asked, what's worse, the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody? And Keller answered, to have eyes and not see. A profound, insightful statement from someone who had been blind and deaf her whole life. To have eyes and not see. So, application, what do we do? What can we do so that we can have spiritual vision, so that we can avoid vision impairment? Well, I think we need to memorize Scripture. We need to memorize Scripture. We need to take our study of God's Word to the next level. Spiritual vision and discernment comes to those who have washed their eyes in the Word of God. Spiritual eyes would look at the bread miracles and see and, 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 and conclude, well, Jesus is God. He can provide for my needs and He cares for the poor. He can make something out of nothing. That's what spiritual eyes would see. In a similar fashion, spiritual eyes today would watch the news uh, that we saw this week in our nation and would conclude, well, that's sin, that is sin, and that is sin. Man is reaping what he has sown. People need the Lord, and praise the Lord, this world's not my home. Why? Because when those with spiritual discernment watch the world... The Holy Spirit brings Scripture verses back to their mind that they've studied and pondered and memorized so they can see what God sees and they can assess and diagnose things in the world and in their lives as God would do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul calls it having the mind of Christ. So, memorize Scripture. And by the way, it can be done I've even found YouTube videos that provide help on this. Just, just punch it into YouTube. How can I memorize Scripture? And you'll find some tips. The neglected heart will harden, but the cultivated heart will soften. Here's the next symptom of spiritual heart disease. Number three is hearing impairment. Those who struggle with having a hardened heart, or they can sort of be like Helen Keller, 
unable to see, unable to hear. Notice in verse 18, another question that Jesus asked, do you have ears but you fail to hear? Translation, are you deaf? Have you not been hearing what I've been saying? Like a parent trying to talk to a teenager who's on a smartphone. Yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going to do your chores, and then after that, you're going to let the dog out, and then after that, you're going to put your laundry away, right? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And then 30 minutes later, the chores got done, but nothing else. Didn't you hear me? Yeah, I I heard you, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Well, Jesus was saying the disciples were not connecting the dots. Although they were listening to his teaching, for some reason, they weren't hearing what he was saying. I once read about a music teacher who asked his high school music class what the difference was between listening and hearing, and at first there was no response. And finally a hand went up in the class and the teacher called on him. One of the students gave this bit of wisdom. Listening is wanting to hear. Listening is wanting to hear. In the years following my first time studying this passage where it just ripped me, it just knocked me over and worked me over, ever since then I've, I've turned these questions that Jesus used into a prayer. And he, he uses similar phrases in other parts of the Gospels as well. And so I've A prayer that I will say frequently throughout my day and my week is, Lord, please give me eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing around me. Lord, please give me eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing around me. Because I know, Lord, that I am like the disciples. I can miss things. I, I don't hear everything that I should hear. I don't pick up on everything. Help me, Lord. I don't want to be spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. Now, you've heard me say before that if we want to hear God speak, then we need to read our Bibles. And if we want to hear Him speak out loud, we need to read the Bible out loud. But how can you make sure you're actually hearing what God's Word is saying? Well, this leads us to our next application. I think we need to meditate on the Word. We need to meditate on the word. In Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, blessed, blessed. Is there anybody here that wants to be blessed? I know I do. That's a word that I want in my life. Blessed. Blessed is the man or woman who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. The word meditate that the psalmist uses in verse 2 of that psalm, it comes from a Hebrew word that means intense study. Now, I don't mean that to scare you off, for those of you that struggle with school or hate school. It's, it's describing, actually, more than just a superficial reading, but rather a marinating, a, a savoring of God's word so that it gets into us. 
For example, it means instead of speed reading through our daily devotions so that we can just check them off our to-do list, we should go back over the scripture passage that we read and pull out a verse and zero in and, and reread it a few times and pray over that verse and ask the Lord, what does this verse mean for me, Lord? What, what, is there something I need to start doing or stop doing? Is there, Lord, what is this verse telling me about you or about myself? See, that kind of reflection, that kind of meditation, it may require you to go to bed earlier the night before, but so that you can spend more time in the morning with your devotions, but it also requires finding a quiet place to meet with the Lord, away from the noise of the world. Don't be like the guy several years ago who told me uh, when I was uh, ministering in a church in the Chicago suburbs, he told me he did his devotions on his commute to work. That he, he just listened to a, a Bible podcast or something like that while he was driving to work. And I remember thinking, hmm, it seems to me it would be hard to meditate and memorize and chew on the word while driving. So the fourth symptom of spiritual heart disease is this, memory loss. There's a memory loss that takes place. Jesus asks the disciples in verse 18, don't you remember? Again, implying you should remember, but you don't. Perhaps you've figured out by now that when Jesus asks a question, it's usually not, it's, it's not for a good reason. It's, he's not asking a question because the disciples were getting great grades. They were honor students. So Jesus provides answers to the question. A little review session, teachers. Even Jesus did this. He says, when I broke, verse 19, when I broke five loaves with 5,000, how many baskets uh, full of broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. Uh, then when I, uh, the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said seven. And don't forget, original language tells us that the baskets used the second time were bigger, large enough to hold a man. What's Jesus' point? His provision in the past should remind us that he can provide in our present and our future. But we often forget what the Lord has done for us in the past because our memories, even our memories have been tainted by our sin nature. Even our memories are flawed. We forget things that we should remember. Notice in these rebuking questions how the Lord doesn't tell them they need more faith as he did at other times. Instead, Jesus is trying to say that their faith in him should produce the ability to see and to hear and to remember and to understand. So, how do we apply verse 18c, third part of verse 18? How do we apply it? Well, I think we need to study the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains great stories of the lives of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, and David, and many more of the Lord providing for their needs and coming through for his people. 
Paul says in Romans 15, 4. You might want to jot that down. I'm sorry I didn't put it on the keynote. Romans 15, 4. Paul says, what was written in the former days, meaning in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Another thing that you can do is to to keep a, a prayer journal where you record things that you're praying for, and then when God answers those prayers, you can, you can write down the answers. It kind of chronicles then uh, the journey that you've been on and how the Lord has been faithful to you so that when a time comes in your life when you're really needing God to provide, you can look back in those prayer journals and go, okay, he came through in 2005. I think I can trust him to come through again in 2021. Okay, he came through in 2009. I think I can trust him to come through again in 2022. I had heard a few older saints talk about the blessings of journaling when I was a younger believer, and so I had started doing so as well. And nowadays, there are not only attractive journaling books that you can buy online, but there actually are apps you can get for your computer, your tablet, or your smartphone where you can journal electronically, and there's all sorts of tagging and tracking features. In other words, we have more available to us to journal and record our prayers to the Lord than any other generation has had. So, I have to ask, is your heart hardened? In Proverbs 4.23, Solomon told his son, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Springs of life in Proverbs 4.23, it comes from a Hebrew word that means a starting point or the fountainhead. Solomon was in essence saying the heart is where it all starts. And if your heart is right with the Lord, then everything else will take care of itself. Surrendering your heart to the Lord is how you start a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And keeping your heart is how you grow that relationship. However, it's possible to look like the model of spiritual health only to collapse because your heart is not healthy. And that's why the neglected heart will harden but the cultivated heart can soften. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.